17th. Get recharged. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover. And welcome to this edition of Cover to Cover, Open Book, or as I like to call it, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, your host for the next half hour. My focus is always on on film and thinking about film both in terms of its its meaning and its impact. With me today, um, I'm joined by somebody who I always enjoy talking with. Herman Gray, he's a professor of sociology at University of California at Santa Cruz, and he has a wide variety of interests. Um, you can talk to him, like he knows every jazz record. We listen to something and it's like he knows. But he also knows about um, many other things, including black visual culture and the production of subjects, um, the role of music and the production of cultural identity and media representation and cultural politics. Uh, I first became aware of Herman Gray when he was in Marlon Riggs' film entitled Color Adjustment that looked at how uh, African Americans were seen in primetime television from Amos and Andy to The Cosby Show. And I thought it would be great to have him on to talk about a couple of current films that are playing right now, Lincoln and Django Unchained, and look at the issues of representation, uh, particularly the issues of slavery and how they're talked about and demonstrated in film. So, uh, first off, Herman, welcome to KPFA. Thank you, Raina. It's nice to be on with you. Thank you for your generous introduction. <laughs> Great. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I went back and forth whether we should stop with whether we liked the films or <laughs> didn't like the films <laughs> and in what way. But um, I... I was really interested in how uh, you viewed each of the films and uh, what you thought about them. And then, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, there's other films that we could even include if we need to, like Beasts of the Southern Wild or other films that are kind of trying to deal with something or not and how they do it. So perhaps we can start with, um, you know, why do you think right now that there's films that are, are trying to talk about the African Americans experience during the time of slavery. You know, what do you think is happening? Is this just sort of in response to the 150th year of that? Is this in response to Obama as president? What do you think? You know, I think it's probably some combination of both. And, um, you know, maybe it is the popular, the effect of popular history and um, the way in which popular history has you know, taken a place, its place among kind of contemporary storytelling as well. And um, that 150th anniversary moment is um, crucial to that, right? I mean, it's a benchmark through which to think uh, Lincoln and think emancipation and think uh, democracy, particularly with a black president, um, you know, leading the country for for a second time. So, you know, it may be a number of things that are coming together to um, put this kind of square, squarely on the agenda. Um, one, one can also think of the kinds of um, things that didn't make it, right? I mean, it's not the first time that the theme has been um, treated 
all right? I mean, I think of independent filmmakers like Haile Garima, who did Sankofa. Again, whatever one thinks of it, but it was an attempt to um, engage with um, slavery and memory and African-American presence in the New World, right? Uh, Quilimbo, the Brazilian film, comes to mind as well, and that wonderful Cuban film whose name escapes me, but... Um, you know, so so I'm I'm also thinking about independent films that have tried to thematically um, address um, this period, and it may be that you know, in terms of representation, I've been thinking about this uh, a fair amount since um, we first uh, talked or exchanged emails about this, and that is about the representability of something as large and um, unwieldy and formidable as um, American chattel slavery, right? I mean, to, to try to get one's head around what it means to bring that story to bear systematically or piecemeal even on film is a pretty big undertaking, right? Um, done by academic historians and done by, um, you know, novelists of one sort or another. But I don't know that cinema has been up to the task of, of that kind of, grandness of that story not grand in the um, you know celebratory sense but grand in the large sense of what it means to try to get at some of these issues well it's so interesting because you know people are now talking about history not as a, well I guess there's still a divide history as a series of facts mm-hmm. versus history as an argument <laughs> right. or, or different ways that um, of course if you and I were at the same event um, and each of us were interviewed about it, we would have different experiences. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, you know, how how does it come up with, like, even the words that this is the experience of, quote-unquote, slavery? Um, you know, how does one even attempt to represent it? And I guess that's what you're talking about. Right, that is a kind of, almost a kind of impossibility, right? And yes. so to try to grapple with the very that very impossibility means then that, you know, it, it, one can come at it from any number of different directions and lapses and, you know, perspectives and that sort of thing. So it's the very unwieldiness of it, which I think is, um, it's got people in a way disturbed or exalted about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Depending again, as you suggest, on whose perspective and which side and which period, right? So a lot of the kind of usual objections to in a way, both of the films are about, for example, agencies of one kind or another, black agency, um, you know, the, 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 the very construction of black bodies, laboring bodies as property and a property system, right, um, violence, all those sorts of things. And, you know, to tell that kind of dramatic story, um, both what I would call in the case of Lincoln a kind of procedural drama. I think about this. It's almost like, you know, we're so we're so kind of prepared for it. If one thinks about the crime stories and one thinks about the West Wing and one thinks about procedural dramas in courtroom, right? This is the perfect procedural story, at least as Spielberg has rendered it through um through Kern's Goodwin's book, right? And and in some ways I think that what they elected to do in telling it through that procedural um, route was to avoid a lot of the, the the kind of questions about actors behind public policy or interests and that sort of thing. 
And, um, of course, you know, one of the criticisms has been that, you know, you can't tell a story without black agents involved, that that emancipation was not something given to black people, but something that black people struggled. And, and their allies struggled mightily and quite a long time for it, right? And so how do you tell that story of struggle in the context of a series of procedural politics located in Washington, D.C.? Um, and so that, it seems to me, it, to go back to your original point, is a question about history. Do you render history through those procedural um, tales, right? Or do you render it through the kind of dramatic personal narratives? And it's not an either-or question, but clearly Spielberg made a choice about how to render that story. Well, he certainly usually does things that are sweeping. <laughs> and I was thinking that there are actually... Uh, two interactions with slaves in the film. The first is at the beginning where uh, the the slaves are reciting part of the Gettysburg Address. And then the second is in the house where somebody says um, to the maid that, you know, uh, well, were you beaten when you were a slave? And she says, I wasn't a slave. I, I've always been free, but you can ask him. He was a slave. Right. And so there's there's a way where I think, oh, so this these are the only comments about slavery, which are remind me kind of of a of a kid in a school book kind of thing. This is the facts that I know, rather than mm-hmm. something messy, something intense, something violent. It's all been kind of leached of that. Right, and again, I'm not I'm not a, a trained historian, but clearly the the way in which the those three tropes are functioning in the film, right? I think have everything to do is it or it's a kind of gesture i don't know that it's so motivated on his part but if one thinks about the kind of the kind of cultural divides and the kind of cultural politics within you know contemporary so-called post-racial black uh, america right one thinks about class divisions and one thinks about professional leadership and you know all these ways in which these figures stand in for a kind of point of identification and um, it, it is striking that the work that they do in the film is to is to stand in for these um, historical moments or these blocks of positions right and in a way you know one wants more from uh, a film that purports to to engage with that period you know on the other hand it is true that 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 um, one could ask, well, what work does it do in the film, right? In a way, it, it's it's a, I suppose I would call it a perfect liberal gesture, right? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that acknowledges and recognizes the kind of gloss on complexity, right? But, of course, there is no Douglas. There are no Africans, Americans in the South who are um, rebellious and who are um, uh, revolting. There are no black abolitionists and journalists in the north right who have formed alliances with various kinds of uh, pro-abolitionist forces there is no radical tradition there is no radical voice anywhere in it except stevens right and so there is the way in which these these kind of cardboard figures do the work of kind of gesturing as i say making a gloss on those things but one of the things that i was thinking also is that if you think about Lincoln in, in relationship to the other films, I do think that the um, the kind of veracity that Lincoln carries with it, the sheer authority of the film, has to do 
with both the genre and Spielberg and the topic. And so it strikes me that its um, shelf life is going to have a particular kind of true status, you know, in this in this historical account that w- that increasingly people will turn to it as a kind of marker about how um, what slavery was like and what you know passing the amendments were like and that sort of thing. And I think that that that, that ought to at least be concerning, right? Because if that's given all the problems that we've been talking about, um, if that's how it may be taken up, then one can already see um, the work that it does into the future for staking out a particular kind of claim on um, telling about that period, right? Um, in some ways, Roots functioned that way for a long time, right? I mean, Roots was the go-to piece that um, that was a story about the uh, the assimilation of chattel slavery into the American narrative of uplift and mobility, right? Um, so every you know Black History Month it would be trotted out, and every televisual celebration it would stand in as the the thing, right? So I think that one of my concerns is in the absence of other kinds of films um, and a range of films, not just in the United States, but from other places that don't enter into the conversation and that aren't a part of the conversation into which Lincoln sits, that it it runs the, has a strong possibility of emerging, you know, as the benchmark telling about uh, American chattel slavery. And I think that would be a real... You know, I mean, there are ways in which it's filling in some space, but I, I would worry. I would be concerned about that. Well, it's interesting that you say the absence of other films. Here we are in 2013, mm-hmm. and there's certain things that one would think would have been touched but still haven't. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So so maybe we can move from there uh, to Django Unchained, the film by Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to let people know that uh, I'm speaking with Herman Gray, who's professor of sociology at UC Santa Cruz and uh, is really uh, a very well-regarded expert on media representation and cultural politics. So this is really interesting. So Django Unchained, um, you know, the, there was a lot... Uh, I mean, I should go back and say Inglorious Bastards first. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right, right. I remember feeling like I can't go see that film. Right. <laughs> and then at some point, I did go see that film, and I'm like, I actually like this film. I am horrified <laughs> in a way that yeah. there was. Um, so in this film, Django Unchained, you know, he's really basing something on a spaghetti western which Mm -hmm. was this whole branch of films that came out from like 1960 to about 1984 Mm -hmm. uh, in Italy that really presented (laughs) the westerns in a new way and Mm -hmm. he's kind of basing it on one and there was also one uh, called Django itself which was considered one of the most violent films made and didn't get uh, released in many countries because it was considered too violent so there's these different links Um, Mm -hmm. So there's both the story that he tells and then there's the form and function of the story mm-hmm. that he tells. So mm-hmm. what do you think, Herman? Well, I, I think in relationship to Lincoln, because I think it's really important to put it in relationship to Lincoln among the other things that you've mentioned. And that was my last point about the veracity of Lincoln in relationship to Django in particular. It may have a different kind of shelf life. and mm-hmm. It may actually be the counterweight 
to whatever worries people have about Django. Um, you know, I was surprised. I, I, one, I talked to a couple young folks who saw it, and they found it entertaining. So that, for me, it, there was no sampling or wide survey of anything, but I was struck by the entertainment value that um, Tarantino w was able to wrestle out of this story. Um, and it struck, strikes me as very much a cartoon. Um, and one could ask, well, why would he turn to a cartoon uh, it writ large, both in terms of the spaghetti western and in terms of the kind of melodramatic, you know, story, um, and uh, and also a kind of violent story um, at that, and and maybe the fact that he, it it is what I was calling a kind of um, unwieldy tale to represent or story to try to represent might have something to do with Tarantino's choice. You know, I can't help also but thinking some of the marketing mileage that he's been able to get out of it has to do with the way in which it is an uncontainable story. You can't contain it in any particular place, right? And so people come at it from a variety of directions, either loving it or not loving it at all. Um, I found the film entertaining. I was surprised that I wasn't more upset by it than I, particularly because some dear friends who are filmmakers and um intellectuals were quite upset about it. So I didn't find it on the face of it um, upsetting in quite the same way the use of the of the N-word and um, the ways in which Sam Jackson's character appears in this day. I mean, there are lots of things going on. But I must say I was struck, though, because I think this film is a film about film, right? That it's more about film than it is about um, slavery per se. And I say that because I think that there's a critical scene in the film when, um, I forget the, the uh, German character's um, name, but he and Django are about to kind of embark. He frees him, and they're about to embark on this escapade to um, find these um, the, the, the hunters, uh, the bounty folks. And he sits him down, and he sort of says, you know, um, this is a play, this is an act, and I want you to pick a character. And I want you to pretend that you're that character. And you can't ever break character, right? And then, you know, Jamie Foxx tries out a couple characters. And throughout the movie, he's, you know, there's scenes with him, with his wife, where he's about to break character. And I thought that was very telling for a number of reasons. One of them is that I thought it was a kind of comment on the impossibility of cinema to actually... Um, grapple with the reality of slavery, right? And so, in a way, this is a fictionalized account, clearly, of um, of that particular historical period. And secondly, I thought that um, Fox really doesn't break character. So it's not a particularly character-driven film. It's a sort of set piece, it strikes me, in which there are a series of, um, you know, Stagings, one can call them ethical, moral, whatever, political, whatever one wants. But it is a kind of reckoning with good guys and bad guys, with, you know, in the end, the kind of melodramatic climax of the house burning, a la uh, Gone with the Wind, right? And so it strikes me that one can ask, well, what's going on with Tarantino's choice not to give us fully developed characters and fully developed human beings? And is slavery such a formidable um, you know, 
event that it's impossible to do something like that. Well, I don't particularly buy that. So, you know, in a way, this is what I think he's done with Inglorious Bastards as well, is to kind of stage a series of um, revenge, you know, narratives and hang all this kind of blood and gore and humor and so forth on it in order to draw out a kind of um, story about good and evil, a morality play, if you will, right? Um, And... You know, whether or not slavery in the end is simply a story about a kind of good and evil and revenge, it seems to me is where this, it starts to fall short, right? Jamie Curtis's character, Django, doesn't change in the movie. He doesn't, he isn't transformed in any way, right? Um, very few of them are. Um, the violence is, some would say, gratuitous. Um, I thought there were some scenes that I was terribly disturbed by. Um, and um, so, you know, the film has a lot of the um, the qualities, again, of a kind of vehicle for Tarantino to, I suppose, um, take sides in in this story. And slavery, it strikes me as really a, a kind of sidebar to this. It's a sort of, you know, narrative hook on which to hang his hat. But I don't think this is a story about slavery at all. Well, no, so that's interesting. I need to ask about how you don't see that it's a, a story about slavery. Because on one level, uh, you know, it, Jamie Foxx's character, Django, uh, is a slave. Mm-hmm. Although I do have to say that there is this sort of American myth that's sort of embedded. I mean, many American myths. But this one that... Uh, so what happens that you were talking about is Dr. King Schultz basically mm-hmm. says this performative thing you need to play a character Mm -hmm. but through the course of Django playing these characters who he is changes like Mm -hmm. that he somehow becomes uh, less downtrodden he is more competent he's more skilled you know this as if somehow the the level of violence that was done to him as being a slave has somehow gotten eradicated um, you know, just this idea, if you have, if you think positively, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you say, you know, that mm-hmm. somehow you can therefore, uh, get through anything. So there's that fantasy about it, but he is both a slave confronting slaves in all these different situations, um, whether they're realistic or not. So, uh, tell me why you think that therefore it's not a, not a slave film. Like, what is it, what el- what is it doing instead? Well, that's what I was trying to say. I think I think it's a film about film, mm. and it's a film about, for me, about the perhaps the impossibility. Not I'm giving Tarantino too much credit on that one, but for me, I think I keep thinking about the possibility or the impossibility of representing um, slavery as a full blown economic system rooted in chattel and property and terror and violence, right? And so, again, the kind of, um, the, 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 the kind of fit of that into the American mythology of uplift and, um, you know, perpetual progress, it seems to me to, to miss the mark. And what I mean then is a much more, um, I mean, Tarantino is a student of cinema, so it strikes me as much more a film about the genres of the spaghetti western and melodrama and um, um, what do you call the sort of black exploitation gesture, right? 
and slavery, it seems to me, is the narrative, is the narrative content that he's used to run with it, right? And so think about, you know, all of the, it's like, in that sense, to me, it's like Lincoln, all the stuff that drops out of the film or that never enters in the film. Um, it, it, it strikes me as, again, a choice point that the filmmaker could have made. So, again, we don't have complex character development. We have characters moving through and good guys and bad guys chosen up, right? And, you know, the generous interpretation, again, is that uh, the people who defend Tarantino are defending his right for black people to have revenge, just like he did in, in Glorious Bastards, right? Um, and so how much of the revenge of slavery is, in a way, about slavery? How much, how can we reckon with the continuing presence of that uh, event and the institutions that it produces and the labor that it extracted and the wealth that it transferred, right? Can we reckon with that through that this kind of um, simplification? And maybe that's too much to ask of cinema. Well, it's interesting because it makes me think of Fistful of Dollars, which is uh, one of Sergio Leone's films. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's basically this character betrays and plays gangs against one another in order to make money. And then mm -hmm. he uses his weapons and tries to assist a family. And then he gets threatened by the gangs. And then he's disclosed and beaten. And then in the end, he uses his cunning and inordinate skill mm -hmm. to somehow get out of it. So that's right. the, And that's this plot line, right? in right. some ways, of Django Unchained. Right. So, right. so we're taking something that is um, overly simplified as a, as a drama structure mm -hmm. and then laying it on something that's really important. So the question mm -hmm. is, you were worried that will Lincoln sort of carry on and be used in classrooms and become the, the word, the standard. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Django Unchained and how that will either... Uh, either somehow be linked to it or um, used in some kind of way? That's interesting. That's an interesting um, um, question, too, and a challenge for, I think, a generation of uh, journalists and scholars and, and culture workers to think about. I suspect they're going to be linked um, because I think linking them um, gives a little oxygen to the other, right? In some ways, Lincoln can do its work precisely because Django is around, and Django can be dismissed as a, a kind of, um, you know, light, if not not light, certainly, but a, a, a kind of gloss because Lincoln is around, right? And and I suspected that they may have a shelf life um, um, together, and it'll be interesting to see... Um, you know um, what becomes of the the most vehement oppositions, particularly to Tarantino, right? The the absence of uh, a certain kind of um, respect for um, the ancestors of um, African Americans, the use of the N word, the uh, excessive violence, right? If those things wane as the film kind of moves through um, the future, right? I'll be interested to see if people come to see it with uh, less animated responses, because it certainly generated lots of responses. The other thing that maybe this, this your question um, 
reminds me of it, is the kind of ideal spectator that Tarantino had in mind, right? And whether or not, you know, the, the ways in which the burden of representation as it falls on African Americans in particular is still burdensome in the same way, right? That It strikes me that a lot of the debate about the film is still a debate about the burdens of representation and to what extent can representation deliver, right, on its promise to address some of these questions, right? And I'm not sure that this film is is capable of doing that. If anything, it strikes me as, you know, um, highlighting the the magnitude of the burden that blackness still has to bear. Well, we're talking with Herman Gray. You know, in this coming year, there's going to be seven new films about slavery coming out. I can't wait to have you back in a year, and we can sort of put these two <laughs> in perspective with the other seven and see where we've gotten. Herman Gray, professor of sociology at UC Santa Cruz, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Open Book Frame to Frame, Cover to Cover. Thank you, Raina. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Okay, uh, my name is Raina Cowan. I will be back next month with another edition. Uh, thank you for joining me, and I also want to thank our board op, Erica Bridgman. This is KPFA Radio. On Wednesday, February 6th, between 8 and 10 p.m., in honor of Black Journalists and Black History Month, Black Report Radio is hosting the first annual Black Media Appreciation Night on KPFA which was recorded on November 26th at the Yoshi's Restaurant in Oakland. On this night, many of the Bay Area's warriors on the front lines of black journalism were honored for their contributions of educating the community on black issues in an era where many have lied to themselves and euphemistically called it post-racial America. Join us in celebrating life and resistance media in this unforgettable broadcast on Wednesday, February 6th, between 8 and 10 p.m., on 94.1 FM and on kpfa.org.